time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Back to the Cold War show, I think episode 36. <laughs> I fucked up the numbers last time, but I think this is 36. Numbers are the wonky. Yeah. yeah. Um, how are you, buddy? Doing doing good. I'm not punchy at all. I'm fresh as a daisy. And yourself? Fresh as... Ah, uh, yeah. Um, it's hot, man. It's yeah, hot. It's cold here. I'm sweating like a dog. Freezing my testicles we're, off. We're... We're in hour three of our uh, recording session today, and um, yeah, I would. You know it's like. I wish you were here to testify with me and hold my testicles because I'm freezing. But that's a whole different story. <laughs> only only five months to go, buddy, and you'll be here, and I'll be able to hold your <laughs> testicles as much as you want. Oh my god, I can't wait. Anyway, oh, uh, cut your nails this time. That wasn't funny last time. So in our last episode, we were talking about uh, the creation of the United Nations. Mm -hmm. We were talking about uh, some of the problems with the the models and the Security Council and how the Security Council vetoes have been used. We talked about how the guy who originally was given the job by President Frankie to uh, sort of write the plan was Sumner Wells, and he kind of, you know, (laughs) wanted to have a three-way with two black dudes on a train that the president was also on and that didn't go well no is it i Um, mean isn't there like a signal to give like i shouldn't even approach you because you're not one of us i it's complicated never mind i i thought yeah that these guys had secret handshakes (laughs) i don't know how this works um so anyway after sumner wells resigns the majority of the work on the UN Charter was done by an interesting guy that pretty much no one remembers, uh, Leo Pavlovsky. Mm-hmm. Can we call him by his uh, nickname? Pavlova? No. no, no what? Pazzi. He was called by some of the people in the State Department, Pazzi. Pazzi? P-A-Z-Z-Y. Pazzi. Pizzo? Piz- no. No. P-A-Z-Z-Y. Just Pazzi. But we get, whatever. Whatever. We can call him Leo. Pavi? That doesn't even make sense. Why wouldn't they call him Pavi? No, damn it. Listen, Pazzi. Okay. Pazzi. All right. Don't get pizzy. How about Leo P? Leo P. How's that? <laughs> well, in Australia, we have a very, very famous uh, dessert called Pavlova. Oh, okay. Which uh, I will I will feed to you when you come out, along with Lammies, Lamingtons and Pav, man. Nice. But uh, anyway, call him whatever you want to call him. All right. So... When Leo died in 1953, his obit in the New York Times, which was hopefully slightly more accurate than their obit for Castro, (laughs) is subtitled Wrote Charter of World Organization. Pretty much sums it up. So uh, not a bad uh, epitaph epitaph on your obit. 
um, wrote Charter of World Organization. Not bad. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty good. He was apparently a short, fat pipe smoker with a big mustache. <laughs> had a uh, very large and round head. Yeah. And himself used to joke that he would find it easier to roll places than to walk. <laughs> oh, real quick, um, Sumner Wells was his epitaph. Almost wrote the charter, but I got caught with my dick in my hand. I don't know. Um, no, it was almost had a threesome with two <laughs> black dudes. Failed at that as well. But anyway, I'm probably, yeah. I digress. Um, an aide in uh, the White House compared. Uh, Leo Pav to the third little pig <laughs> in the three little pigs. <laughs> Apparently his boss, Secretary of State Cordell Hull, oh. used to refer to him as Friar Tuck. Oh, wow. Okay. Short and stacked. Okay. But, All right. So short and fat. I got you. Yeah. All right. But he was a he was a 50-year-old Jewish emigre from the Ukraine. He had been Hull's personal assistant, he was known as this one-man think tank mm-hmm. for Hull. Damn. Hull would just point him at stuff. Go and work this out. Go and work that <laughs> out. Yes, boss, yeah. no problem. Fucking yes, yeah. I'll get in there. He was worked hard, smart, didn't like the limelight, preferred to stay invisible smart. in the background, a bit like you, Ray, yeah. except he worked hard. So there was oh, that, and so he was smart. Not like me at um, all. He, before this, he was, a, like he was a journalist. He was sure. an economist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Journalist and economist. So had this guy had experience, and his family uh, had left the Ukraine in 1905. They were anti-Czarists. They left in 1905 when he was a teenager and moved to the United States. Mm. And so this is kind of because they were anti-Czarists. He was sort of pro-Russian revolution. Right. Um, back in 1919, he had covered the peace, the Paris Peace Conference for the New York Tribune and had campaigned later for the admission of the Soviet Union into the League of Nations, even though he wasn't a big fan of the Bolsheviks. Um, He had supported the Russian Revolution, but when the Bolsheviks took over, he turned against them. In fact, when Trotsky visited New York in 1916, so before the revolution, Mm -hmm. um, Pav uh, debated him, Ah. debated Trotsky even before... So he was pro-revolution but anti-Bolshevik even before the revolution happened. Didn't like their model of uh, a violent overthrow, an armed revolution. Right. He wanted more of a, uh, a democratic, peaceful Russian revolution. I don't think you can have a peaceful revolution, but hey, what do I know? Oh, man. Well, look. That's a whole topic that I do want to get into <laughs> okay. at some point. You know, and you know, I, I honestly think that the idea of a peaceful revolution mm-hmm. has been propagated by the elite as being a worthy thing. Ah. And that violent revolutions are a bad thing right. to stop violent revolutions. That's smart. I was I was debating with some guy on Facebook in the last week. Uh, I can't remember what we were referring to, but he said, violence has never achieved anything. Shit. Um, and I, he, like, in terms of revolutions, he was like, violence has never achieved anything. And I just said, That's not true. wow, dude, you really sound like someone who knows absolutely fucking nothing <laughs> about history. But I'm sure you're a nice human being. 
Because people who have the power don't want to give up the power willingly. Who's got the voodoo? And you do. The, Sorry. Because they've got the power, they usually have control of the police and the army, the military, so they're not going to give up power willingly. It normally takes a violent revolution right. uh, to overthrow the elite that are in power. I mean, it's unfortunate. Personally, I'm a pacifist. I don't like violence. I don't want violence. But uh, there are times in in uh, the history of countries where the oppression gets so bad that it needs to be stopped. There are no legit, as we talked about in the Castro episodes, like he tried to uh, run for parliament, he tried to use legal means mm-hmm. to overthrow the Batista government. Nothing was working. His only recourse was a violent revolution. Yeah. And uh, I think, the honestly, I think the US is there already, has, has been there for a long time. I mean, you're getting fucked up the ass on a daily basis even before the Trump administration, by the elite and their control over 99.9% of the wealth and the power. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take an armed revolution uh, for the US, I think. It's going to take another civil war and, uh, uh, yeah. We'll see what happens. I think it's I think it's coming. Yeah. But I'm too, anyway, I'm too, I'm too but, old, so I'll, I'll just watch everybody fight and cheer them on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, might be your son, man. Your 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 marine might be one of them. Who don't know what side he's going to be on. Right. Uh, anyway, let's get back to the Pav. So, um, the Pav was a very smart guy, and and he and Cordell Hull preferred a centralized model for the Security Council as opposed to the one that Roosevelt and and Wells had, which. I don't think we explained in much detail in the last episode, but their original model was that the permanent members of the Security Council, the P5 as we call them, would have regional responsibilities. So the US would be responsible for the Americas mm-hmm. and France would be responsible for Europe and England would be responsible for Europe probably too and Russia would be responsible for the northern part of Europe and China would be responsible for China and Asia. But... Uh, Pavlovsky and Hull wanted a centralised model where everyone was responsible for the entire world. They thought that made more sense. They all had uh, a, a say in what was going on in the rest of the world. And, of course, that model ended up being the one that we have had since 1945. Well, I wanted to ask a question. I mean, yeah, the whole regional power thing, I mean, to to, to change the words, that's spheres of influence, which FDR... Yes. FDR made a speech that he was against. He goes, spheres of influence don't work. None of that shit works. We need to come up with something new. But the point is, uh, and I was surprised that um, that Wells and Churchill liked that. And I think to a certain degree, Stalin liked that uh, because you can keep an eye on your own backyard and you get to pretty much make the shots. But what if the big power in the region does something where they become the bad guy, who's going to control them? So there is no final arbiter if they do do this regional power. But again, if you do central, if you do centralized power, if you decentralize it and it's across the board, then you can start to mess with other people in other parts of the world. So there's no perfect system. But I certainly think that the regional power is the weaker of the two because that's just this is my American empire and I'll, I'll, I'll take care of Canada and everything in South America. I'll control everything, which means I will pretty much get my way in this part of the world. How is that possibly fair to the smaller powers? No, I don't think it was designed. Or not that blatant. In the, Sorry. 
I don't think it was designed to be like a spheres of influence arrangement where you're the only power that has responsibility. They were still going to have the Security Council. Yeah. They were still going to have the permanent members that were still going to get to vote on issues. It's just that they were going to be the dominant player in that part of the world Mm -hmm. and would have the primary responsibility, but you would still have the UN and the Security Council uh, keeping an eye on that and having a say in that. As opposed to having a united force uh, that everyone contributed to that that played a role in all parts of the world if trouble broke out. Of course, realistically speaking, we ended up with a regional model of spheres of influence anyway. As we've explained many times, at the end of World War II, the Red Army had a couple of million guys uh, walking around, you know, sort of the, the, the... eastern part of Europe and in Berlin and all that kind of stuff, whereas the Americans and the British only had a much, much smaller number. So, And after the Americans and the British withdrew their forces, it was basically Russia that controlled that area with their military anyway. Mm -hmm. So you still end up with the spheres of influence. If you're on the ground, you've got the army, you're the guy that's going to have more influence than the guys on the other side of the planet. Well, let me... me, But I'm sorry, go ahead. I just had another question. Going back to Sumner Wells' idea of, you know, trying to base something off the League of Nations, who in the hell decided it would be good when they were creating the League of Nations? Because I know we need to compare the two because they're going to take a look at the League of Nations and go, okay, we've got to do a hell of a lot better than that because they didn't stop anything. So anyway, um, but the idea of um, a unanimous vote, everything has to be unanimous, unanimous vote in the League of Nations. How would that possibly work who came up with that idea and then who's the second person said yes brilliant let's go with that the idea of getting a unanimous vote on any international subject to me just seems absolutely insane yeah i think it was woodrow wilson probably who had that idea and oh then i take it back it was brilliant it was uh it was, uh, yeah, obviously flawed. I mean, uh, Chrissy and I can't even agree on most things. So <laughs> we can't agree on dinner. A bunch of yeah. heads of state to agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, under this new model, the Pavlovsky model, uh, the Security Council also grew into an eleven-member group of countries, mm. not just the four or five that um, Frankie had envisioned. Right. Grew bigger, but we still only have the. You have the permanent members, and then you have a bunch of, of rotating members, uh, of course, and that's still how it is today. So, so these other countries, uh-huh. these other countries uh, got to have a say on how the Security Council voted on issues, but of course, none of them got the veto. Only the P five ended up with the veto. Now, uh, a, a later Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, who was the Secretary of State under Truman wasn't a big fan of Pavlovsky. He wrote that Pavlovsky's view of international relations was, and this is the quote, unhampered international trade and the true road to it through agreements reducing tariffs. Hmm. So I wanted to point that out because, A, that sounds to me like standard US policy since World War II anyway, but also pointing out that... um, Even the creation of the United Nations, the guy who created the final version of it, Pavlovsky, at least according to a secretary of state who knew him, was all about unhampered international trade. Uh, that, That is still the focus here that the UN, the creation of the UN was mostly about. It was about how do we enable the United States 
to sell more shit to people around the world <laughs> and get access to their natural resources so right. we can build even more shit. Sell it back to them. That has been – that's the basic underlying thinking of most of these things that happen. It's the underlying thing of the the um, U.S. involvement in the war in the first place, uh, you know, the the Atlantic Charter, as we've talked about, um, the the – Marshall Plan, as we'll see later on, and the creation of the UN. What underlies all of these things at, to a large degree? I'm not saying this is the sole issue. It's like I said over and over in all of the economics episodes. It's not the only issue, but it's a big, big issue that I think people don't tend to take into account. Right. Uh, whenever you read about a conflict brewing, like the one right now that's brewing between the United States and Russia or the United States and China... Um, you, you need to think about what's the what's the trade relationship like here? What's going on underneath the covers? Who what what are they competing with in terms of oil or markets? And uh, who's trying to take what from whom at at the level of trade and economics? Because the newspapers don't tend to talk about that. You might read about that in the Economist on page eighteen. Right. But uh, that doesn't get the headlines. The headlines are all about the argy-bargy, but uh, the the underlying stuff, the fine print, you'll usually, if you dig deep enough, usually find that there's uh, an economic war going on. Yeah, and you get closer to the truth when you ask those kind of questions. I think so. Yeah. Now, in a 1967 letter, Acheson criticised American moralism and in international affairs, and he said that it culminated, American moralism culminated in, and this is the quote, that little rat Leo Pavlovsky's United Nations. <laughs> really didn't like him, did he? Well, at least Asherson didn't. I mentioned this to show that even senior U.S. Uh, administration members in the early years of the Cold War weren't entirely happy about the UN, the role of the UN, how it had been put together. And not all of them necessarily agreed with American, uh, as he calls it, moralism or the view of foreign affairs of that, that it's just unhampered international trade. There were some dissenting views even inside the U.S. administration at the time. Well, and, and to take that a step further, not that I'm going to jump too far ahead, but Pavlovsky has got his, his work cut out for him. Not only does his whole going to have to, recommend, uh, to rely on him a lot, but obviously Pavlovsky is going to have to explain this to Roosevelt to make it make sense. Because when they get to Yalta, and, I, and I'm going to stop right here, but when they get to Yalta on day three, FDR still doesn't quite really buy into this. He's got he's got to have Pavlovsky tell him keep telling him this. Churchill doesn't like it. Stalin doesn't like it. So they're so FDR is going to try to sell this to him to these guys. He's not crazy about it, but it's the best compromise they can come up with. So it's not a perfect plan. He knows it's not, but now it's time when we do get to this part, it's time for the ultimate sales pitch. Because something has to happen or if they if it doesn't happen, it's all gonna fall apart. There will be no UN. There will will be no body for everybody to talk to each other. And when you don't talk to each other, there's gonna be misunderstandings and tensions and eventual war. And all three of these leaders are trying to avoid war, but for their own particular reasons. Yeah, they're all trying to avoid another big war, but they want to protect their interests at the same time. Absolutely. And I wanted to point out that the original American proposal for the Security Council that was submitted by Pavlov at um, 
Pezlovsky, Pezvolsky. Sorry, did I think I switched up the letters? Oh, yeah. Pezvolsky. Pezvolsky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When he presented it at Dumbarton Oaks, was that all the permanent members of the Security Council should abstain from voting and from exercising their veto power on issues that directly involve them. I may have mentioned this in the last episode. So, yes, they had veto power, but they weren't supposed to use it if it involved their countries. Bullshit. And Stalin and Churchill, Joey and Winnie, (laughs) refused uh, that model. Absolutely refused that model. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if, if we had actually gone down with that model, the United Nations would probably work a lot better than it does today. The Security Council, if their permanent members couldn't vote or veto on an issue involving their country, uh, I think it would actually be a better functioning organization. I, I agree, because you would have to rely on uh, other countries to vote the way you want them to, but... Um, so that's not going to work. They're going to have to come up with an alternative formula for that. And the one they do is the one that's going to be pitched by FDR and by Statinius, uh, secretary, uh, this, uh, the State Department. But again, so I think the compromise that they came up with is clever. But I think you're absolutely right. If they had kept that and everybody wasn't allowed to vote on in, on issues that directly affected their country, we probably would be a lot better off. Because what you can do now is you can just stymie anything that you don't like if you're one of the people that has a veto power. And I think last time you told us the number of times that the United States and Russia had vetoed. So obviously they're looking out for their interest. Fuck fairness. As long as we don't get burned on our end, we don't care about anything else. Yeah, and as I think I explained last time, Stalin, Joey was obviously concerned that the Anglos would gang up against him Mm -hmm. on anything he tried to do to secure his borders. And he's right. Uh, Britain, Winnie was concerned that the US and Soviets would gang up on England to dismantle the British Empire sooner rather than later. Right. And the US was also concerned, Roosevelt himself was concerned about the role the UN might play in what he thought was going to be a, a possible future dispute between the US and Mexico yeah. over oil interests uh, near the Mexican border. Um, <clears throat> but Pazlovsky told him that the UN Security Council uh, wouldn't be able to take any action against the United States without American consent if they structured the vetoes in this way where Everyone, you, you got to use the veto even if it was on your uh, about an issue involving you. By the way, both the United States and Britain also expected to have proxies on the Security <laughs> Council uh, in, amongst the other uh, 11 members and in the permanent members. As I think I mentioned before, Britain was pushing for France to be given a seat mm-hmm. on, the secu- on the permanent members because they um, believed that France were in their debt and would support right. them. And the Americans, as I think, again, we've mentioned earlier, wanted China on there because they thought they would be able to control China. They thought China was going to be pro-American. And so they would each have a proxy. So out of the five members, there'd be two voting for Britain, two voting for American interests, and the Soviets had to fend for themselves. So it wasn't even fair from the get-go, the structure 
of the Security Council. It was it was flawed and unbalanced from day one. They're all covering their asses <laughs> on day one. But but here's the thing that I admire. So Stalin knows this going in, and because of his spies, he generally knows what they're going to propose and the the the, the bugging devices or whatever. But uh, but here's my thing. I mean, he's like my troops are in, uh, you know, they're in Berlin. I mean, we are, we are in, we are, we're about to, excuse me, we're about to be uh, in Germany property proper. We're taking over these places. He knows he can't trust anybody, but he's also been told that Russia is going to need at least 10 years to recover, to be ready for a next war. We don't trust anybody. No one really likes us at this point because they're still paranoid or whatever. But the point is we need to come up with something to at least have peace for 10 years so we can recover, so we can, at, uh, at the very least, be ready to defend ourselves again, because Stalin is obsessed with stopping the next war before it starts. But if it does happen, he wants to be able to defend his country and not have to have a third of it ruined again, like has happened the last two wars. So he is obsessed, he's compulsive, but he has every reason to be. Yeah, so back to day three at Yalta. Um, so the, this issue that they're trying to resolve is how much influence the smaller nations should have on the Security Council. And we've talked about this uh, before. Joey felt like they shouldn't have any say. Yeah. In, in his way of thinking, the, the great powers, the big three, had shared blood money, time, effort to liberate the smaller countries. So the, the smaller countries just shut up. Shut up and be thankful. And and be thankful, yeah. Uh, and this was the whole let the small birds sing stuff that we, we talked about in uh, an episode, I don't know, four or five episodes ago. But um, Churchill also had concerns. At one point, Winnie turned to Charles Bolin, who was uh, the State Department's Russian expert, Roosevelt's translator. Mm -hmm. Uh, Winnie walked with him to the door, and this is how Bolin explained it in his memoirs. Oh, my God. Um, Growling in his customary fashion, Churchill admitted that he had not had time to read the American proposal carefully and asked whether Bolin could explain its main idea to him. Having absorbed a good dinner with the customary libations, Bolin wrote in his memoirs, I was emboldened to tell the Prime Minister that our compromise proposal reminded me of a story of a southern plantation owner who asked a Negro whether he liked the whiskey given him for Christmas. When the Negro replied that it was perfect, the master asked what he meant. The Negro answered that had the whiskey been better the master wouldn't have given it to him. And if it had been any worse, he couldn't have even drunk it. (laughs) So therefore, it was perfect. (laughs) Now, in Boland's analogy, the Negro is the smaller nations. Yeah. Damn. Basically, you get what you get. And it's good enough, but you're not going to get anything better. So just be grateful with what you get in in, in terms of... That you have some say. Be grateful that we're letting you have some say at all, really. My the kid, my kids go to a private school because we got it like that. And there's a saying in their school, and the saying is, "You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit." So whatever works for six year olds obviously should work for nations as well. 
But I, I think this is so interesting. So it's February the 6th. This is the most, to FDR, this is the most important thing. This has got to happen. This has got to work. Even though he's not 100% confident about the compromise, the formula they've come up with, but he's going he's gonna to push it. He's going to try and sell it. And the last two days, excuse me, the, 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 the day before, he has agreed with Stalin in general on reparations. He's agreed with Stalin on dismemberment. He's like, okay, buddy, it's, time, it's payback time. So I need you to give to me what I've been giving you for the last 24 hours. So I'm going to put this out there, but I really, really need this to happen because if it doesn't, there's no UN, there's probably no peace, and there's probably another war in the future. And none of us want that. So his sales pitch, which he's going to let Stentinius do, has got to be perfect, and he's got to get the Russians on board, and there can be no delay. This needs to happen on this very day. Yeah, but as we know, Frankie's... uh Health isn't great and his mind's not all there. Yeah. According to Lord Moran, who's Winnie's uh, doctor who was there, in his diary he said Roosevelt was irascible and became very irritable if he had to concentrate his mind for long. Ooh, if good. anything was brought up that w- wanted thinking out, he would change the subject. <laughs> and he can do that because he's the president. Yeah, but, you know, you're trying to solve these complex issues about how to build this world organization that's going to have all this power. And your brain's And going. he's like, ah, dude, that's too <laughs> fucking hard. Let's move on. Talk about something else. <laughs> Let's just build a wall. Not, Much easier. Come on. Not, yeah. not the ideal temperament yeah. for somebody who's in control of this process of building a world organization. But, yeah, they all wanted – they all said they wanted – to obtain 50 years of peace nice. for the world. Um, now, I think that's really important to stop and acknowledge. At this point, mm-hmm. all three, Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt, wanted 50 years of peace for the world, um, for the Russians and the British so they could rebuild their countries and their economies. Right. Um, and the U.S., so they could just build their trade and make money. Yeah, I guess. so we can clean house even more. Mm. But we all know it didn't happen. Right. We all know that it didn't happen. At Yalta, all three were committed to that. And it, 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 you know, we know that they were all fighting again in Korea within five years. Mm-hmm. What happened? And I guess that is the, the story of this series and why, we, why we're telling this series. All three wanted peace. Yeah. Well, I, I don't remember the exact words, but later on, and, I, and I'll just keep it very short, Stalin is going to say, look, as long as the three of us are sitting around a table, as long as we're alive, as long as we're in charge, I think we can make this work because we all know the horror that this this world has just gone through. But later on, there will be others who will take our place because we're not going to live forever and they're not going to know the horrors and they're not going to take this as serious as, as we do. So let's, why we can focus on this, get this right. We need 50 years of peace. And Churchill says something like, it would be a great crime to all those people who have died if we can't secure peace for at least 50 years. So everyone who did survive this horrible event can at least enjoy the rest of their lives. So they're all coming from different areas, but their same goal is to have peace because it's ju- it has just been so bad. But Cam, Cam, I just wanted to ask you a question, Cam. For me, Stalin is obsessed with the war and who fought in the war and who won the war. But the war is almost over with. And one day there'll be where there is no war. 
but he is basing everything the, about the future, about the United Nations, about this meeting, whatever. He's based on who were the big boys that helped win it. I mean, I'm, I'm having a little bit of trouble going along with his vision because, yes, you helped beat the bad guys, but now the bad guys are defeated. And if we can all get along, it doesn't matter your country's bigger than mine and you have a you have a bigger industry than I do. Why does it all have to be about who defeated the Germans? That's the beginning of a conversation, but that's not the basis of a deliberative body that's goal is world peace. So he, he's narrowly focused, and I get why he's narrowly focused, but at, at some point you think he would have stepped back and go, well, it can't just be all about who beat the Germans. There's more to life than just that. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I think you're right. I think that there, there there are some discussions where who defeated the Germans should come into play in terms of reparations mm-hmm. coming out of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a fair position to take. We in, lost the most, so we should get the most in terms of reparations. Right. Um, and we played the biggest role in stopping the Nazis, so we should get the most. I think that's a reasonable conversation. In terms of uh, the ability to vote on issues or to have a veto on issues and and having that a reflection of the role that you played in World War II, I I think you're right. I don't think that's a reasonable uh, way of building a global organisation built around fairness and justice (laughs) and everyone having a voice. But I don't think you can lay it all on the feet of Stalin because the other guys demanded they get their veto in the council as well. True. Now, so none of them really gave a fuck about the smaller countries. <laughs> about Albania. Because, yeah, you know, or, you know, as we'll see later on about Vietnam. Right. I mean, or, or Iraq or Afghanistan. None of them gave a fucking rat's ass about fairness, and we know that because they all had the veto built in. Mm -hmm. So they could do whatever they wanted. As I mentioned before, Roosevelt was worried about this potential conflict over oil on the Mexican border, Mm -hmm. but he he was talked down by Pazlovsky who said, don't worry about it, dude. Mexicans can't do anything even through the UN because we've got a veto. That's right. It was brilliant. And, and, and the point I'm trying to make is, and I don't want, and I want everybody to remember this, this is still a classy version of might makes right. So these guys, they beat the bad guy. They're going to try to form a delivered body that, that will try to stop the next war, not do a better job of when the next war comes, but literally stop any future war. But at the same time, they're still looking out for themselves. That's what you do. So even even in this kind of um, idealistic setting, everybody is still looking out for themselves and the hell with everybody else to, to a certain degree. That's just the way life is. Yeah. yeah, look, I think that's the underlying rule for all of these sorts of international conflicts. Everyone's always trying to look after their interests. Yeah. Didn't I, didn't I have a quote about that in the last show? No nation has friends, only interests. Yes. I think that was a de Gaulle quote yes. from the last episode. Damn Frenchman. I think that I think that is probably <laughs> the distillation of my approach to trying to understand geopolitics yeah. and probably the distillation of all of the shows that we do yeah, from the Caesars and, and Alexander and all of his generals now in the War of the Successes and this one, it's all about protecting your own interests. And you, you you can try and pretty it up and fluff it up and talk about this and that and human rights and blah, blah, blah. 
at the end of the day, every country and the people who are in the leadership of the country are trying to protect their own personal interests, Mm -hmm. political and economical, their own wealth, their own power, and then the wealth and the power of their party, the wealth and the power of their state, their country comes next, uh, and then the interests of other nations and their people in those other nations come after that. Right, distant third, yeah, yeah. Well, distant tent, oh, maybe. Right. Yeah. Good point, yeah. Mm. So I, I just wanted that brought up so that, yeah, we're doing the show, we joke around, and it's cool to learn stuff, but, yeah, there, there's a message here. Everybody is out for themselves. Uh, I don't know if it's good, bad, whatever. You don't need to label it. It's just the way it is. So just just be aware of that as you go through life. You know, just 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 know that. So so to kind of jump in. But here's yeah. no no don't. But before we move on, the point that I I wanted to really fucking drive home and nail here before we move on, right? Is all three wanted fifty years of peace. Their three countries wanted 50 years of peace. That would have taken us through to 1995. Nice. <laughs> if we could have But got they it. failed. Yeah. Why did they fail? Why did it all go wrong? How did it all go wrong? That's the story that we need to understand, I think, in yeah. order to pick apart how geopolitics, yeah. uh, international affairs works. Well, the... the and just before we go on any further, the first part of the answer to that is the actors on the stage are going to change. Yeah. So we know that by 1950, well, we know that by 1946. Yeah. Uh, by fuck, by the end of 1945, <laughs> right. as I said before. Yeah. A few months a few months from Yalta, Churchill's out of a job, Roosevelt's dead, Stalin's the only one left. Yeah. Do the other, do the guys that replace them give a shit about 50 years of peace? Probably, but yeah. uh, to a same. point, yeah, yeah, no. But but you've stri- but they also yeah. care more about protecting their interests, right. than protecting peace. And you've stressed this time and again. I mean, FDR went out of his way to develop to cultivate a relationship with Stalin, which had to be one of the hardest things. I mean, this guy just sat there, gruff, smoking his pipe. Yes, no, whatever. I mean, you know. He, he was just this hard ass guy, but FDR, I think, to a degree, got through to him, and they had an understanding. They had a relationship, and FDR's greatest asset was like there are certain things about Stalin and about Russia that I can't change. I know we fucking lost Poland. I know that all the territory that your troops are on. I know they're not going to get off. I'm going to do the best I can with what I have left, which is not perfect, but it's realistic and it's practical. And because he had that worldview. These two actually had a relationship that, and you said this earlier, if if FDR had lived, you know, longer, a couple, 10, 15 years longer, whatever, I don't know, they could have had, they could have really built up something, but alas, that does not happen. So everybody has to move on. Yeah, as we'll see when we get to the Potsdam conference, when Truman is at the table instead of Roosevelt, <laughs> it's a very different it's, dynamic. It's a different and vibe. Deliberately, too. Yeah, yeah. Truman Truman sits down and goes, Stalin, fuck you, <laughs> sit down, shut up, here's how it is. I got a bomb. And he can do that because he's got a bomb. <laughs> I got a bomb. Yeah. I didn't bring it with me, but I and, got one. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Back to day three. Yes. So, as you said, Statinius, the current U.S. Secretary of State, who's replaced Cordell Hell, he gets up and gives this long-winded, detailed explanation of the voting model for the Security Council 
Everyone's yawning, looking right. at their watch. They pull their iPhones out. They're checking Facebook <laughs> surreptitiously under the table. Swipe of course, the they left. didn't want anyone to see. Yeah, they're, they're looking for. They're on Tinder. They're looking for. Looking Crimea for some, checks. Booty. They're getting Cri- hit up. Crimea checks. <laughs> yeah. And and the funny thing was Stalin and Churchill ended up hooking up. They both had fake photos on their profiles, so they Damn, didn't know they arranged to meet in a room. Oh, man. They, they worked out together like oh but they went they went through <laughs> they, with it anyway yeah. because you know they agree. Why not? Yeah. And what happens in the Crimea stays in the Crimea. So they said they testified <laughs> to each other. <laughs> so um, anyway, anyway, during this speech, yes. Statinius mentions that they'd made some changes to the model since oh, uh, everyone met at Dumbarton Oaks to accommodate the suggestions of Joey and Winnie. Yeah. And everyone was like, whoa, 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 <laughs> fucking, whoa, what? Wait a fucking minute. Right. You've changed. Oh, well. Square I, one. I, I, we are. We we didn't know that. We haven't had a look. They said, well, we sent it to you. Didn't you get the email? Well, I saw the email, but I didn't read the... Right. I didn't read it. Yes, I saw it. <laughs> but I did But I didn't have time to it. read it. I'm busy. Do you know what the... Do you know what the Wi-Fi is like in the Lavinia Palace, man? <laughs> it's not Oh, good. my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So Stalin immediately freaks out. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? And it's quite clear to FDR at this point that Stalin hasn't read it or he hasn't thought about it or whatever. Or at the very least, he doesn't like it. So FDR is getting nervous. But here's Stalin thinking, you're trying to slip one over, over on us. You're telling me you've made some minor changes? Bullshit. That's bullshit. And then and before, and before this can go any further, I think it's Molotov that's pretty much like, well, we need to think about this and read it closely. Let's finish talking about this tomorrow, which is normally the diplomatic way of saying this conversation is over and you are not getting what you want. But then Winnie spoke up. Yay! Apparently, up until this moment, he'd seemed bored, was checking Tinder, etc. Then he jumps up (laughs) full of energy. Because he had a nap. Well, my theory is because he got a hot date on Tinder, (laughs) didn't realise it was Stalin, but he's like, oh! I'm, I'm getting some action. Let's wrap this thing up. I got to get out of here. I got to go and shave and M- Moscow, put some talcum powder Mo- on my balls. Moscow girl one four nine. I'll see you later on tonight. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Let's wrap this shit up. I got a date. No, but he did. He did. Um, I think FDR let him sleep in his in his quarters. He had a nice meal. He had a nice nap. So by the time this come is coming on, Churchill probably rub um, one out. <laughs> one or two out, I don't know. But he is well rested and he is ready to go. So, the, but the point is, FDR, FDR has to give the speech. The speech flounders. Stalin and Molotov shut this shit down, and they're about to move on. The day's about to be over, and out of nowhere, Churchill charges into to take FDR side and keep the conversation going. Go Churchill, go Winnie. So he is going to try and save the day. Even that, but the, the ironic thing is, he's still not sure how he feels about it. He's still got conflicting um, thoughts about it. But he's going to jump in and try to help his buddy FDR. I just got this image of Churchill rubbing one out now. I want a painting of that with a cigar. Yes, yes, yes. Do it. Another good one. Oh. Right Anywho, hand, left hand. Anyway. Moving on. Go, please. So, yeah, so he actually says, 
So if China should raise... <laughs> what fucking accent is that? <laughs> Let me sort of get a little toffee. If China should raise the question of the return of Hong Kong under the president's proposal, both China and Great Britain would be precluded from voting in regard to the method of settlement of the controversy. So at this stage, the model is still, if the issue's about you, you don't get to vote. Right. But you can still use your veto later. Yeah, they, they can talk about so, it. You can't stop people from talking about stuff. But before any action is taken, that's when, boom, you come in with your veto and you shut it down. But that's the point that they're not. Down. Exactly. That's the part they're not clear on. That's confusing and pissing Stalin off. You flop it out, slap it on the table. <laughs> boom. Yeah, so Stalin found this whole thing unconvincing. And again, as you said, Molotov had spoken up and said, sorry, dudes, like, we need to go and read this. We don't trust you, motherfuckers, one iota. <laughs> and they we, think you're trying to sl- we think you're trying to slip one over us. Uh, little did he know Churchill and Stalin were going to slip one in <laughs> yeah, but later on. But <laughs> um, a few months earlier, uh, when Winnie had been in Moscow, he had raised the example of Hong Kong in, in a conversation to show why he opposed the American proposal at the time. What? He's using um, the same example, but using it two different ways. Yes. <laughs> okay. So back then, he had, back in October, he had said, if in the discussion of that question, Britain and China are asked to go out of the room and the question is decided by Russia and the United States, Britain will not be pleased. So, but now, yeah. here we are in February. Now he doesn't have any problem with the scenario. Yeah, and that's um, making probably. I'm sorry. I was going to say that's making Stalin's bullshit meter go to ten. Yeah, but probably because he's been persuaded by the Americans that he could veto any decision afterwards. That if he if he didn't like it. But as you said, Stalin's bullshit meter just goes off the charts. <laughs> he's not having it. Um, and he kind of takes the piss out of Churchill's rhetoric about the danger of creating an impression that the great powers wanted to rule the world. And he apparently said, well, who do you think it is who wants to rule the world? Is it, is it the United States? <laughs> Does the United States want to rule the world? And people start laughing. And everyone laughed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Roosevelt just used his hand movement to go, no, 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 no. Yeah. Was it the United Kingdom? <laughs> no. Who wants to rule then? What, the Soviet Union, China, really? <laughs> and uh, everyone's laughing. Winnie tries to explain that he didn't mean any single power would want to rule the world. Yeah. But Stalin pays no yeah, attention. He's going for down. gags. He yeah. starts telling jokes, man. He's doing his stand-up routine. <laughs> he's getting more laughs now than he's had in months. Yeah, yeah. Um. He says, it looks as though two great powers have already accepted a document which would avoid any such accusation, but the third has not yet signified its assent Boom! and insists that they're going to need more time to review the changes. Mic drop. Now, he has now become pretty hostile towards the whole idea of the uh, voting system doesn't really care, as we've said before, what the smaller nations think. All he cares about is that the three big powers are unified in some way because he believes only the three of those can bring any assurance that there would be continued peace. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, whatever happens, I mean, and he pretty much uh, accuses them openly of uh, trying to gang up on him. So the, the 
I think the sad part is I think this got confused somewhere along the way with the translations. If they could have just said, okay, let me make this absolutely crystal clear. The way this reads now is anything can be discussed and you might be asked to leave the room or whatever. You might be uncomfortable, but anything can be discussed. But before any action can be taken at all, you can then use your veto. But they couldn't get that uh, that that very simple idea through through the translators and between uh, Stentinius got confused and the Russian translator got confused. So by that time, Stalin smells a rat and he's like, no, 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 this is bullshit. This is bullshit. We will go back and study it. We need more time. So again, FDR had built everything up to this moment and it doesn't go the way he wants it to. Pretty much like what had happened to Stalin. Stalin didn't get what he wanted completely on the dismemberment. He didn't get what he wanted on the reparations. So no one is really getting what they want. And we're into day three of the Yalta conference. And, you know, one of the reasons why we did all the background to get us up to here was to sort of explain the reasons why these three don't trust each other, particularly Stalin doesn't trust the other two. Right. Because of the experience that the Soviets have had, the, the both the US and the UK invaded Russia after the revolution, mm-hmm. 1919, 1920, and Churchill wanted to gas everybody and... Yeah. Uh, you know, the, and then when he was trying to do the a deal with them at the start of World War Two, no one would return his phone calls. The U.S. didn't even acknowledge the Soviet government up until uh, Roosevelt came to power, um, and so he ended up doing the deal with the Germans because no one else yeah. would sit down at a table and listen. So. I mean, there's a long track record of distrust and animosity between these people. So I think it's reasonable for Stalin to be paranoid as fuck going into this thing. <laughs> yeah. And, what is uh, it, what and are, he wants to read the fine print. Yeah. yeah. And, and what is that saying? The best way to predict the future is to look at the past. So if, if Stalin looks mm. at his immediate freaking past, um, because um, and I can't remember how much we went into on this show, but basically right before Germany and Russia signed the non-aggression pact, the the British had pretty much promised Stalin they would sign something. But they send a guy on a fucking boat in a fucking train. It takes him weeks to get there, whereas Hitler is willing to send his guy Ribbentrop on a plane. And the guy gets there and he doesn't have the powers to sign anything. So Stalin, uh, Stalin knows he's being jerked around. He's not being given the proper respect. He is not being taken seriously. So in that environment. Yeah, he's going to sign with Germany. He knows uh, Hitler's going to break it, but he's going to have some time to build up his forces. He knows he basically can't trust anybody, and that's the way the world is. And also Stalin reminds them that his colleagues in Moscow were still uh, remembering the events of December 1939 during the Finnish War mm. when uh, the League of Nations expelled Kicked their ass the Soviet out. Union yeah. at the instigation of England and France, mobilised world opinion against it. Um, so, you know, they had a pretty bad experience with the League of Nations, the Soviets, and so he's not going to walk into any other global organisation where he's not absolutely certain that the Soviet Union's interests are going to be protected. And so the debate is over. Damn. But th- there's something I have to ask you, and, and we'll try to have a little fun with it or whatever. But at this point, Stalin says, they all know that as long as the three of them lived, none of them would involve their countries in aggressive actions. But after all, 10 years from now, none of them might be present. 
a new generation would come into the present, not knowing the horrors of the present war. And what makes that so weird or ironic is that's almost word for word what Churchill said that very morning to his doctor. So I'm thinking, did Stalin have him bugged? And he almost quoted him to fuck with his mind, or was it just a coincidence because they're in this atmosphere and they're all thinking the same thing at this moment? God, I would love to know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know, man. But I I, I think, you know, it's fascinating to just ponder that fact. I mean, we in the West, we've all grown up believing Stalin had plans for world domination and wanted to take over the world. Right. But here he is in Yalta. Now, you may say he was lying. He didn't believe any of this. This was just all bullshit. But certainly he seems to be genuine yeah. in all of these conversations. Uh, he said even... Um, we are apparently making it our goal to establish world security for at least the next 50 years, or perhaps I only think so because of my naivety. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I genuinely at this stage believe that Stalin genuinely wanted 50 years of peace for the Soviet Union because, again, they'd lost 27 million people, economically just yeah. fucked. He needed to rebuild his country and... Uh, and yet, uh, as we've said, it, it obviously didn't it didn't happen because they were all gone yeah. within ten years. And, and here's the other part: I, I don't think we've said this. Oh, uh, Churchill! Sorry, Churchill wasn't gone. Churchill right. was back. Right. When did Churchill get reelected? Like late fifties? Yeah, something like that. So, but but by then it's too late because you've already had conflict in Korea. But here's the other part that I find interesting: one, when they went into Yalta on day three, February the sixth, FDR is optimistic. Churchill is pessimistic and FDR is, is just his, I mean, excuse me, Stalin is just his normal self, pragmatic or whatever. But, um, but shit, it's gone now. But and so these guys are like, we need peace to, to, to rebuild everything. But and here, here's the interesting part. The United States and Britain wanted an organization to be able to stop a conflict if one got going. Stalin, because of all of the shit he has been through and his country has been through, he wants an organization that will stop any kind of fight before it gets going. So they are coming at this with slightly different worldviews. But you can say whatever you want about Stalin. But he is absolutely paranoid about never having a war again, if he can possibly help it. But certainly not in the last in the next 50 years, because his country has been devastated twice in ways that we cannot even imagine. So for him, this is a very real thing. And he can't be nice. He can't uh, have a friend. He has got to do whatever it takes to protect his country. So uh, 51 to 55 was Churchill's second run at Prime Minister. Ah, there um, we So, yeah, but, but, you know, Stalin was right. Ten years later, they were Boom. all gone. Yeah. Churchill's prime ministership was over. Burns, uh, Justice Burns, who was there uh, as part of the American contingent, future Secretary of State, um, wrote in his memoirs, I was deeply disturbed by the clear evidence that Stalin had not considered or even read our proposal on voting in the Security Council, even though it had been sent to him by diplomatic air pouch on December 5th. <clears throat> so he's had two months and hasn't read it. Yeah. 
Probably because well, A, he might have been busy fighting the Nazis. Right. B, um, yeah, probably not a big believer uh, that it was all going to work out. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, but but Stalin again wraps them on the knuckles by saying no peace will, could last without Russia's uh, uh, agreement. But then because he's talking to FDR, because he's talking to Churchill, man, at the very least he has to respect. He does apologize for not make, for not making time to study the proposal in detail. So he gives him a hard time. I don't trust you. I think you're trying to slip the, anything, something over on me. But I will go back and study it now, and I apologize that I did not study it before. So carrot and stick coming from Stalin. Yeah, I'm sorry. My <laughs> bad... Uh, you know, I've had so much on lately, guys. I'm so Winning sorry. Winning the war. Yeah. I didn't have time. As I always say when people say I don't have time, you have the same amount of time as the rest of us, motherfucker. <laughs> the question is what you choose to do with your time and how you prioritize your time. How would Stalin take that? Don't tell me you don't have the time. Um, so... Uh, uh, Harry Hopkins apparently said about Stalin, that guy can't be much interested in this peace organisation. <laughs> Lord Moran, though, who part of the British contingent again, Churchill's doctor, later wrote, Stalin can see no point in vague sentiments and misty aspirations for the freedom of certain small nations. He is only concerned with the borders of Poland, with reparations and with what he can pick up in the Far East. Roosevelt would like to prescribe for the world. Stalin is content to make clear what the Soviet Union will swallow. Be realistic. Before they, yeah. before they finished day three, they did discuss the future of Poland. Uh, the US and the UK wanted free elections, but Stalin believed that since the USSR had, in air quotes, liberated Poland, yeah. it had a right to make sure that Poland ended up with a government that was friendly. What's the point of the Red Army going in and kicking the Nazis out of Poland and then letting the Polish end up with another government that's uh, not uh, you know, supportive of yeah. the Soviets and their border and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. doesn't make sense to him. So they end up deadlocked in the discussion of Poland and they end up leaving that for further discussions too. Frankie states that the Polish question had been a headache to the world for five centuries... <laughs> And agreed that they probably weren't going to fix it overnight, uh, but something would have to be done to change the situation. So he, that night, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. No, I was just going to say he almost made a poll like joke. He's like, yeah, they've been a big pain in the ass for the, the last fifty years. We're not going to figure this out now. But yeah, um, it was pretty. The way it came off, it was pretty funny at the time. But as we know, uh, the Polish situation is one of the major sticking points mm -hmm. that goes on and on and on and on. It'll be a thing at Potsdam. It'll be a thing after Potsdam. So, um, yeah. yeah, they don't get much progress on that here. That night, though, Roosevelt sends Stalin a letter about Poland suggesting that the big three create a new Polish government themselves at Yalta mm. without the presence of the Polish Let's not invite the Poles. Let's just sit down and create a government with some people that you trust, some people that we trust. Boom. You know, what could, what could go wrong with that? You know, that whole Atlantic Charter self-determination <laughs> of the people's bullshit, bullshit. None Toilet of us paper. really believes that. Yeah. That's all propaganda, press release, blah, 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 blah. Really, American president talking to 
uh, Soviet premier, uh, let's just invent a government. Yeah. Like, uh, and what if the Polish don't like? Fuck the Polish. What do they? They don't get a say. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it's not only Stalin who's saying that right. the smaller nations shouldn't get a say. Here's Roosevelt suggesting they should create a government for the Polish. Not give them a say in it. Fuck them. They'll just take it. They'll swallow it because we tell them to. There's one. Li- anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to read. It. I'm finished. I was just going to read one line from the letter where FDR says, I hope that I do not have to assure you that the United States will never lend its support in any way to any provisional government in Poland that would be amenable to your interests. So um, he's pretty much saying there, look, we can talk about this all, all day long, but you are in Poland, you know, you own that shit, so there's no way that I'm going to try to do anything that you wouldn't agree with because I recognize the military reality of the situation. And that's the end of the episode. We'll pick it up with day four of Yalta Woo. next time. Thank you, buddy. Yeah, thank you. buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.